kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. And if the rest of you will open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. If you do not have a Bible, you are welcome to use one of the pew Bibles. Actually, if you don't have a Bible, you can have one of these pew Bibles if you'll read it. And the book of Mark, we're going to be looking this morning. um, Our first place we're going to look is in chapter 10. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 847 in a pew Bible. 847 in a pew Bible. Well, we are, last week we introduced this new series, uh, our new series on the book of Mark that we are calling Follow the Servant. Um, it is a, it is, we're going to be walking through this book over the next several months. And last week we introduced um, several features about the book, introduced the first eight verses of the book. And we learned last week that chapter 10, verse 45, is our key verse to this book. And, and, and let's read that in Mark 10, 45. On page 847 of the Pew Bible, it talks to us about what Jesus has come to do. And it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ, who is the eternal God, who clothed himself with flesh, came to earth, that as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he did not come so that others would serve him, but he came to serve us. And to serve us by giving his life, by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And so last week we introduced the book by talking about that this key verse is indeed Matthew is Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. We talked as well that the book of Mark then presents Jesus as a servant. And we use this uh, little picture. It's, it's kind of a corny picture. It's a little groaner, but it'll help you remember the theme of the book of Mark. And here is our picture. We've got a big M on a big boat, and our big boat looks like a or an ark. And it's got an M on it, so this is the book of M. Mark. So this is the book of Mark. And we see this anteater, and this anteater is being served, an ant, by a waiter. And the theme, so this ties to our theme, our theme of the book of M. Mark, the Mark presents Jesus as a serve ant. Right? Okay, got it? Just so you remember. I know a groan and groan came last week, so I trust you see that. So, Jesus is a servant. He has come to serve us. Now, why that's significant is we read in the book of Mark, there's some things that we don't see that we see in the other Gospels. For instance, in the book of Luke, in the book of Matthew, we see the genealogy of Jesus. But if we're talking about a servant, nobody cares what the genealogy of a servant is. What matters with the servant is, does the servant serve? And in the book of Mark, we see Jesus as a man of action. And actually, our key word in the book of Mark is immediately. That immediately, things are happening all the time. And so, we don't see a genealogy. And also in the book of Mark, we don't see a lot of Jesus' teaching. Now, we're told over and over that he preached. We're told that he taught. But what Mark focuses on are the works of Jesus. It focuses on his miracles and the supernatural things that he did. Which, again, if... The book's presenting Jesus as a servant. We're less concerned about what a servant says as compared to what a servant does. And so the book of Mark presents us as Jesus as a servant. The theme of the book is immediately we see Jesus as a man of action, and he's a man of action who has come to seek and to save the lost, to serve and to give himself, his life, a ransom for many. Well, last week we finished in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 8. And this morning we're going to pick up in verse 9. 
Now, as we pick up in verse 9, it's right in the middle of a textual unit. Uh, verses 1 to 15 serves as an introduction to the book of Mark. And so we're, we're going to jump in kind of right in the middle of it. And, we're, and, and then now, and this is how we read our Bibles, right? I mean, we don't typically have time to sit down and read like through a whole book of the Bible. Right? We are reading chapters, sections, a few chapters at a time. And it's important that we understand how to read our Bibles well. And one of the principles of Bible reading is what we call context. And if we're going to understand a passage, we need to understand its context. What went before it? What comes after it? Because that's going to help shape the meaning of the text. Because otherwise, we can just pull a verse out and make it say anything we want. Okay? And so we don't want to do that. We want to be good Bible students. And as we jump into verse 9, as we're going to read verse 9, there are a number of questions that are going to come up that the context has answered for us and we'll look at together. So Mark chapter 1, verse 9 says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, we'll just pause here. Now, if this is where we pick up, there should be a bunch of questions that we're asking. Uh, For instance, we should be asking, it says in verse 9, in those days, the question becomes, well, what days are that? Well, if we would read up a little earlier in chapter uh, 1, verse 4, it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And so those days are the days when John was baptizing. When he's baptizing by the Jordan River, when he's preaching, calling people to, to, to repent of their sins. And so those are the days, that's when this has taken place. The next thing it says is, in those days, Jesus Oh, well, well, who's Jesus? What do we know about Jesus so far in this book? Well, all we know is what was said in chapter 1, verse 1, which is the title of the book. It says, the beginning of the gospel, gospel means good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus, his name means Yahweh is salvation. So is Jesus, Christ is Messiah, this Old Testament uh, prophet who the prophets talked about in the Old Testament, that Jesus is the one who fulfills all those promises. And it says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we also realize that Jesus is the Son of God. He's really significant. He's not just going to be any ordinary servant. He's the Son of God. So what days? the days when John was preaching. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of God. Um, He is the one that they've been waiting on. Well, it goes on then. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Nazareth of Galilee, where's that? That's northern Jerusalem. The Jordan is is, uh, about 21 miles from Jerusalem. So Jesus travels some way to get to this Jordan River. The next question is, why is John baptizing? And we read earlier, he's baptizing because people, he is, actually it tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. And then the very next verse we say, and John appeared. And John is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises of a messenger who's going to come and get things ready for the coming of the Lord. 
right? So John is the forerunner. He's laying the groundwork for Jesus. So that's who he is. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we're hoping is going to come. He's baptizing. Why is he baptizing? Because people are confessing their sins, that they are sinners and they're rebels against God and they, they need to be ready for the Lord. And so they are baptized to identify themselves with a message of John and to, to demonstrate that we're seeking to live with a clean heart. So, so all that in verse 9 in the context Right? And then the question is, it says, and um, being baptized by John, and and, and it says there that Jesus was baptized by John, which becomes a big question for us. Because if we know our Bibles, if these other people are being baptized for their sins, what do we conclude? Well, Jesus is not being baptized because of what? For his sins. Because we read our scriptures and we realize that Jesus is sinless. And so why is Jesus being baptized if he's not a sinner, if he's not confessing his sins? And if we would understand what's going on here is that the baptism is primarily about identification. Okay, baptism is primarily about identification. Even as, as Christians, when we're baptized, we're identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ and the gospel. When we are baptized, we are saying that, that we have been united with Jesus Christ in his death. And so when Jesus died, it's as though we have died in our flesh and our spirit. And we're raised to newness of life by the work of Jesus because we've been united. And we're identified with the message of the gospel. We're identified with the church. We're identified as believers. So that's, our, that's Christian baptism. But this is before that. And so what's Jesus doing? And what Jesus is doing is he's baptized by John. He is uniting himself with the message of John and the need of the people. That, that Jesus is identifying himself with the message of John and the need of the people. A, a brief way of saying that is this, that the baptism of Jesus identifies himself with this ministry of John. That John, is all that John's about, Jesus is saying, that's what I'm about. The coming of the Lord. And so Jesus isn't baptized because of sin, because he's not a sinner, but because he's identifying with sinners. Okay? And so, and again, why would Jesus do that? Because he came to be a servant. He's come to serve us, and he serves us by identifying with us in the message of John and in the need of the people. Well, as we read on then in verse 10, It says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. And as we look at that, this first little phrase there in verse 10, when he came up out of the water, that gives us a picture of the mode in which Jesus was baptized. If he came up out of the water, that indicates he was where before that? Under the water, okay? And, and as, that's why as we would baptize, when we baptize in our church, that we baptize people by immersion. They go under the water and come up out of the water. We want to reflect the biblical pattern of that, not only the pattern of John, but also we'd see that later as the, as, um, the new church, early church would baptize. We see people coming up out of the water. And so while churches may do things differently, sprinkle or different things, the reason why we immerse is because we believe that's a biblical pattern. But Jesus is baptized. When he comes out of the water, it says immediately, there's our key word in the book, by the way. We're going to see this like 41 times, this word immediately. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, this idea of the heavens, and it's, a, it's an interesting word. It says he saw the heavens being torn open. It's an interesting idea, and we're like, what's that mean? Now, keep your place here, and let's look back in, in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Okay, back here in the time of Isaiah, the people are longing for the Messiah. They want God to come and to make things right. The people of Isaiah's day are being oppressed by the Babylon because of their sin and rebellion, and they're aching. And on page 623 in your pew Bible... We see this prayer, and, 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 this, and it's going to connect us to Jesus and, and to his ministry. And look what it says, Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake in your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by ear or eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. So these old these believers, they're longing for God to come and they're wanting him to tear into this new creation and to tear in and to make things right. And then we hear then back in the book of Mark, we see the heavens torn open. The heavens torn open and what happens? The spirit descends. And in our, our understanding of God, that our God is a triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all fully God. And what is happening? The heavens are being torn and God is coming. And it's a beautiful picture of this fulfillment. And so we see the baptism of Jesus not only identifies us with the ministry of Jesus, but these promises of the Old Testament. I'm real curious what that, I mean, there, when I get to heaven, there are things I'm thinking, can I watch the video of that? Because I don't, I don't have any idea what it would look like for the heavens to be torn open and the Spirit to come. I mean, I think about, I mean, the closest thing I think of, like, of the football team on Friday night, the, the, the cheer people have put these big banner up and this big piece of paper and it's all that, and they're ready for the football team to come, and they're like, okay, game's on, when's the game coming? And then what happens? The football team bursts through it, and there's a celebration. We're like, yeah, the game's on, we're going to win this game, and big deal. And what happens? That paper, they burst through it, and like, game on. And it seems to me that that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is being baptized. He's coming up out of the water. The Spirit of God is descending on him like a dove who's going to be with him. And it's like, game on. Jesus' ministry is about to start. Get ready. Right? And we see that in this immediately idea. This is happening all quickly. And so, we see the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And now, if we're thinking theologically, we're thinking, okay, what does it mean that the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus because Jesus is fully God? Why does Jesus need the Spirit of God and how does that, that all work out? Well, but we also understand, and our theology would teach us, when Jesus took on the flesh, he surrendered the independent use of his divine attributes. We could say it this way. When Jesus became a man, he was going to live life like a man. And so he had, here's my example of this is this. If this is all Jesus' divine power, all right? So he knows everything. He can be everywhere present. He can, um, he is, um, he's sovereign over everything, control of everything. That, that what he does when he takes on flesh is he puts it in his pocket. 
Now, this is an illustration, okay? It's not, um, he didn't have a pocket to put it in, but he puts it in his pocket, and he's only going to use it at the Father's will. Only when the Father says, Son, you can use it. That's when he pulls out his divine powers and he can use them. Okay, and so there are times when Jesus does miracles. He does them always according to the will of the Father. Jesus says in a number of places through the Gospels, I do nothing on my own initiative. And so when we see Jesus doing miracles he is li- and, and living at his life faithfully, he is living as somebody who is trusting the Word of God and the Spirit of God and not primarily his divine attributes. That's significant for us. Because we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens before us, who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet was without what? Without sin. He never sinned. And so if we think that, well, that's easy, he was God, of course, that verse doesn't help us a bit. And that verse is completely irrelevant if Jesus never sinned simply because he's God. Jesus never sinned because he always trusted the Father. The same thing we're called to do. And to trust the Father, to trust his word, to trust his spirit in us. And so Jesus, as he he comes up out of the water, the spirit comes down. This baptism of Jesus identifies us with this work of the spirit. So we see significant things going on. And it's interesting because Jesus sees the heavens being torn open. He sees, the, he sees the Spirit descending as a dove. And then it says in verse 11, and then a voice. So he sees two things and he hears something. A voice came down from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so not only does the baptism of Jesus identify us with the ministry of John, with the promises of the Old Testament, and with the work of the Spirit, it also identifies us with the pleasure of the Father. With the pleasure of the Father, that the voice of heaven, from heaven, we see the Father's voice coming down, the Spirit descending, we see the Son in the water, we see all three persons of the Godhead at this one place, and we hear the Father expressing His delight and His pleasure in Jesus. He says, this is my beloved Son. God the Father loves Jesus the Son. And He's loved Him from eternity past. Sometimes people think, will ask the question, well, what was Jesus doing? What was God doing before He created anything? Have you ever thought of that question? I mean, before He had anything, what was He doing? Well, one of the things that we're told He was doing is in John 17, 24. I'll just read this for you. You can look it up later. John 17, 24. This is as Jesus is getting ready to head to the cross. He says this, Father, I desire also those whom you've given me that they may be where I am to see my glory that you have given to me. And here's where, why. Because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was God doing before he created anything? He was in a perfect, harmonious relationship with himself. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect joy, perfect delight. They didn't need anything. They had no reason to create other than their own goodwill. And so we see this beloved son as being declared at Jesus' baptism that he is his beloved son. And he says, with you I am well pleased. You really believe he's well pleased because at this point Jesus has lived life and he's sinless. 
He delighted in the work of the Son. So we see this baptism of Jesus, and then in verse 12 we make a transition. Now, just to, just to put some of you at ease, I know some of you are like getting all your blanks filled out. That last big bullet point of the message, we're not going to get that far today, okay? So relax, we're not going to go all the way. But, so here's what's going on. But in verse 12, so what happens? So the Spirit comes upon Jesus, and in verse 12 says, and the Spirit immediately, there's our action word again, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Well, what's going on here? The Spirit comes upon Jesus, and the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. What's that about? Okay, well, one of the things, principles of Bible interpretation are to realize that all of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus, right? So as we think about this, one of the beautiful things about understanding and, and, and being able to see all these things put together, when we hear this word, they drove him out into the wilderness. That word there is the very same word that the Old Testament Greek translation that the Bible readers would have been using at the time of Jesus called the Septuagint, that that word that driven out was really significant all the way back in Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. This very word, and what we're understanding is Jesus is filling up in his ministry, Jesus is filling up all that the Old Testament's about. He fills it all up, full meaning of it. And so, Adam and Eve are created perfect. They, they have a perfect relationship with God. And this perfect relationship with God is shattered because of their sin. God comes and he curses the serpent. He curses the ground. He tells Eve that's going to have pain in childbirth. He's going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. But then it says this in verse 24. And what did God do? It says, he drove out the man... At the end, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He drove them out, ekbalo, that's the Greek word, he drove them out of the garden. What happened when the Spirit comes upon Jesus? The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. What's the connection there? I believe the connection that we're seeing there is that when Jesus is filling up all the Old Testament, that this temptation of Jesus, that's what's going to happen in just a moment, that the temptation of Jesus identifies us with Adam. That just as Jesus is identifying himself with us as sinners in the baptism of John. He identifies with us as sinners. Because he's identified with us as sinners, how should the Father treat him? As sinners deserve. What did Adam deserve? To get kicked out of the garden. What did God do with Jesus because he, because he identified with sinners? He, pushed him, he drove him into the wilderness. Now, is it because the Father wasn't pleased with Jesus? No, because the Father was pleased with Jesus. Jesus is, going, Jesus is going to do everything that everybody in the Old Testament failed to do. Jesus is going to do it right. And so he identifies with Adam. He's pushed out. He's identifying with us in Adam because all of us are in this family of Adam. And so he, he drives them out. He drives them into the wilderness. And in verse 13 says, back in Mark 1, 
that he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Does the word 40 show up, number 40 show up in the Bible very much? And it's like all over the place, right? And it's like, what is the deal with that? Well, I don't know all of it. I don't know what all the, how it all puts together. But as we see Jesus in the wilderness 40 days, we also, he, we also reflect back in our brains about 40 and people in the wilderness. And who do we think of? The nation of Israel. They spent 40 years in the desert. But Jesus only spends 40 days. Why? Here, here's, here's what I believe is going on here. That as Jesus is driven in the wilderness, he's going to be tempted by Satan. He's going to a place of testing. And where does Jesus go? To a place of testing in the wilderness. He's going to be tempted. And what's Jesus going to do? How's he going to do? Now, rewind your brains back to the Old Testament. The Israelites spent 40 years in the desert. Why 40 years? Why wasn't it like 37 years or 37 weeks or 89 weeks? Why 40 years? Well, we're told why. We're told that they, they, God had sent spies into the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. They were to go into that land, and they spied out the land, and the land was everything God said it would be. And it was awesome, and it was everything God said it was going to be, but there were giants in the land. They're like, yikes, we can't do this. And they came back, and, and Joshua and Caleb said, Hey, God's with us. We can take this. Let's go. But all the people said, We can't do it. There are 12 spies. Ten of those spies were bad. Two of the spies were good. They said, Let's go. They said, No. And so the people listened to the ten bad spies. And because they didn't listen and obey God, they spent 40 years in the desert. Why 40 years? Because there's one year for every day the spies spent in the land. So, 40 days. Why did Jesus spend 40 days in the wilderness? I believe those 40 days are to reflect to us Israel, the spies going into the land as a time of testing. And how did they do? They failed. And they spent 40 years in the wilderness. What does Jesus do? He says he's tempted by Satan. Our other gospels would tell us when he's tempted by Satan, does he succeed or fail at those temptations? He succeeds. Satan comes at him and he's trusting the Spirit of God and the Word of God and he succeeds on all those accounts. As a result of him succeeding in all of those accounts, Jesus comes through that and he fills up not only all that Adam was to fill up, but also all of the Israel was. Israel's disobedience, Jesus is the perfect Israel. He's the fullness of Israel. He does everything that Israel failed to do. He did right. And so we see the temptation of Jesus identifying us with Adam, but also with Israel. Jesus identifies himself with Israel. And again, he's not relying on his divine powers, but the word of God and the spirit of God, just what we're to be relying on. Then he continues in our passage, and it says, And he was in the wilderness 40 years, being tempted by Satan. I think you could probably make an argument as the Israelite spies went in, they saw giants. I believe that Jesus, as he walks into the wilderness and sees Satan, he knows that he is not using his divine powers on his own, that Satan looked like a gigantic enemy. And yet what did he do? He trusted the Father, not his own powers. And he successfully came through that. And so we see this take place. Well, then it says a little more in our verse 12, and it says, and he was with the wild animals, which is an interesting little 
nugget there, with the wild animals. I believe that helps us point back to this idea of Adam. Outside the Garden of Eden is the place of the wild. Where has Jesus been? He is in that place of the wild. And yet what does the Father do? The Father protects him. And it says then, and the angels were ministering to them. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, we are told that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who for the sake um, who, for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal salvation? Angels are ministers. And, and so I put these together, and what do we see in this? That the temptation of Jesus identifies him with Adam, with Israel, but also this, with the protection and the provision of the Father, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a beautiful thing for us. I mean, we live in many ways, we live on this side of the fall, that we live in this intermediate period that the kingdom of God, because Jesus has come, we kind of in this already has come, but not fully yet. And so we live amongst a fallen, broken world and temptations all around us, challenges that tempt us to pull away from God and to, have, to pursue other things. We see giants that would confront us, that would cause us to, to minimize our faith and to think, well, God can't keep his promises because this is too big. This is too massive. There's no way this could happen. And so what do we do? Rather than reflecting Christ, we reflect the Israelites and we sin. And the beauty of all of this is that Jesus has come for us, that the temptation of Jesus identifies us with all of these things to remind us that we are not alone in our testing. That we have a brother. We have a brother in Christ. It is Christ himself who has accomplished all of this for us. And so where we fail, we know that Jesus didn't fail. Where we fall short, he stood strong. And whenever we, in our own lives, when we think about the sins that we commit and that we beat ourselves up over, that God would say, my son is sufficient. Trust Him. That, that you would turn from your sins. And, and this is believers and unbelievers alike. For those of you who, who are wrestling with this whole Christianity thing and the gospel and not really sure where you are on that and you don't have a, have a, have, have a assured conviction that you are truly have been born again and belong to God and have confidence because of what Christ has done for you, I would encourage you this morning to, to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus. He's identified you with He has identified with you in your sin, in your need, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that He has died, He's given His body and shed His blood so that you can be born again and have new life. And I would call you this morning to trust Jesus as your Savior. For those of us who are believers, I would encourage us to examine ourselves to know that we have a great high priest, that Jesus has identified himself with us, and to really truly believe this gospel, not just so we can go to heaven when we die, but for everyday struggles. Everyday struggles. Parents, struggles with your kids, married people, struggles that you have in your relationships, those who are suffering because of physical illness, that you would trust God to realize that, that Jesus is identified with you and desires to strengthen and comfort you. Those who are beset by grief and your hearts are heavy, that you would find that Jesus is sufficient that His Spirit and His Word, that as you rest in that and as you commit yourself, that you would allow Him to undergird you with strength and hope. 
those of us, as we're walking in, in, in terms of work and the context and conflicts of work, that we would realize that God wants to help us. He's identified with us. And the challenge for us is, will we embrace what He has done for us? We would embrace it in salvation if you don't know Christ, but embrace it in sanctification and our transformation in the image of Christ if we are believers. So I want to encourage you this morning to be examining yourself. And in just a moment, we're going to receive our, our helping hand offering that we're going to use for our van fund. And I want to encourage you during that time to be thinking about where am I in my walk with Christ? Do I see that Jesus has identified himself with me and I can trust him? Are you trusting your own resources, your own skills, your own abilities? I want to encourage you to trust the Savior, the one who has identified us with us in baptism, who the Spirit tore open heavens to come down to be with, the one who has identified with us in the temptation and in the wilderness and has been ministered to and knows the provision and the protection of the Father. And so I'd encourage you during our time of offering that you'd pray and reflect on what can you do with this message. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good, good Father. And Lord, we thank you that in your Son, Jesus, that he has identified with us, that he has fulfilled all these images of the Old Testament through his temptation and his baptism. And then as we begin next week, looking at his ministry of coming and proclaiming the good news, Lord, that we would hear this good news, that we would believe this good news, and that our lives would be being shaped by this good news. Lord, help us. Lord, help us not to just be hearers of your word, but doers. Not people that just know what to do, but do what's right. And we would do that because we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.